All right, welcome back to our series in Jonah. If you're new with us, this is week four of that series. We're going to be in Jonah chapter two. And uh, go ahead and turn there. Jonah chapter two. Uh, there are Bibles stacked underneath the center row, center column of seats. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one of those, follow along with us. Uh, you can turn to page 502. That will, You'll find the Old Testament book of Jonah. And you are welcome to actually keep that Bible, take it with you, and use it as your own. For the rest of you, we've been there for four weeks, so y'all find it. And, uh, and if you have to, break out your smartphone, your tablet, and uh, obviously you can cheat by looking up on the screen. If you're ready, say amen. amen. All right, here we go. Let's read. Uh, actually, we're going to start in the 17th verse of chapter 1 and then go all the way through chapter 2. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Scripture says that when we read it and heed it, it will not return void in our life. We thank you for this uh, particular book of the Bible where we see um, this narrative story uh, told over and over again, really as a, as a kid's tale. But we pray today that you'd help us to see its truth in our own lives. God, we pray that we would hear your gospel, that it would be good news to us. And God, that in its hearing, that we would both, both be repentant, that you bring us to faith, and that you cha uh, cause change in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been in Jonah for uh, three weeks. This is our fourth in the series. Today we're going to talk about faith. So you're thinking, how are you going to get faith out of this chapter two of, of Jonah? Um, hopefully I'll unfold that and convince you that there's a little bit about faith um, in, this, in this chapter. You know, there's a, there's a lot of ideas and opinions about what faith is. Some people... Um, Faith is, I mean, some, for some, faith is superstition. I hope, I wish, I cross my fingers that something is going to happen, and I just stand by and hope that it does. Um, some think of faith as testing God. I, uh, and this brings to my mind uh, one brand of churches. They, they take the, that verse in Matthew 16 that says, And these signs shall follow those who believe. Um, and one of those lines is, uh, They'll grab, you know, they'll pick up a snake and it and it won't hurt them. That's 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 not faith. That's that's testing God. That's not faith. That's actually stupidity. 
right? That's like me saying, I'm going to believe God that I can jump off a building four stories high, land, and be okay. And, and, you know, the chances are I may be able to do that, but there is this such thing called gravity, right? I mean, God put the world in order, and he did it on purpose. And when he made his world, he made it with such things called gravity. Um, some would call uh, yeah, some would call faith, um, you know, giving giving uh, giving pleas to God to bless us. Uh, and I'm not picking here, but you've seen evangelists, you've been in churches, you've seen uh, TV people that will tell you uh, if you send in money um, to my ministry, then uh, God is going to bless you. And I say, if you really believe that. Uh, when you do this, it'll come to pass and, and you'll be prosperous in that. And of course, I don't think that's faith either. You know, many of us don't fall prey to these kinds of ideas of faith. Uh, you may have grown up with superstition, but since become a Christian, put, put that aside. You may have tested God and went, uh, a, two, a time or two in your life, but you, I mean, you don't fall prey to those kinds of ideas about faith too often. But one of the things that most of us are vulnerable to is, is this idea of faith. Most of us, like the disciples walking with Jesus in Luke 17, they're walking along and they just ask Jesus, uh, well, Jesus, can you increase my faith? Can you show me what to do to give me uh, more faith? And it's an interesting thing what Jesus does. He kneels down. He picks up a little mustard seed. And he says, oh, there it is. This, this is all you need. You just need this much of of faith and you'll have enough to carry you through your life. Faith is not about feeling strong and uh, conquerable. I can't say that word. Faith actually is feeling weak and dependent. And that's what Jesus was was after. Um, We think of faith when we think of the, the heroes of the faith. Hebrews chapter 11, that just long list of people. We think of people like Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, who've done great things for God and for his kingdom. And we look at their lives and say, hey, I mean, that person must have had extraordinary faith. But if you actually would go and just read their bios, you see they're people just like you. They're people just like you that went through life and they had about that much faith. And God moved with that. Faith is shown in real dependence, not independence. That's what Billy Graham and that's what makes Billy Graham and Mother Teresa special. They uh, they weren't dependent on themselves. They were dependent on God, who's fully capable of doing anything. And that's really what's going on in Jonah chapter two. Um, here in Jonah chapter two, we see a picture of faith. Actually, we see Jonah exercising his faith. That's probably more appropriately to, to what I would call it. He's exercising his faith. And so what I want us to do this morning is just ex- to extract a few principles of faith. What does it look like in our lives to exercise faith? And I think this will be relevant for all of us. Faith is not hopeful wishing. It's not testing God. Faith is not being strong and confident. It's doing what Jonah did inside the fish. He's crying out to God. Crying out to God. Jonah actually, I mean, he complained to God. Jonah did a little bit of griping and complaining and moaning uh, inside the belly of this fish. He complained to God. And this is, I would say, one of the keys to exercising our faith, knowing that you can do that. Getting your complaints focused right. You know, one person said it like this, getting your yell. I mean, have you thought about that? Have you ever yelled? I mean, have you ever been... So um, bold that you would yell at God. 
I think it's okay for us sometimes to freak out before God because he can handle your freak out. He actually can. And this is really important for all of us, especially you dudes in the room. Because, I mean, some guy, sometimes guys, I know in my own life, we can be passive. You know, we're passive when we're trying to find that right girl. Sometimes we're passive when we lead at home and, and our wives have to take up the, take up the ball. And um, sometimes we're passive in our faith. And God wants to press in on us dudes this morning. Um, so complaining. Complaining is what the Bible tells us that we can do. I'm going to prove this to you. Look, let's look at a, a few Psalms. Psalm 55, 17 says this. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he, he, God, hears my voice. Psalm 13, 1 through 3. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. When I, when I read this, I always get this impression. I mean, the psalmist is really complaining. He's like giving it. And then just to make it sound pretty, he says, O Lord, my God. You know how your kid will... I mean, they'll say something they shouldn't say. And it's like, yes, mom, but, but, but it's like that. Psalm 22, Psalm 22, one through two, we won't read the, the whole thing. This, these are the words that Jesus echoed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And the last one we'll look at is Psalm 142, 1 through 2. Uh, most of these are Psalms of David. And you guys know David, uh, David was chosen by God, but God took him through some things, both leading up to his kingship and while he was the king of the nation of Israel. And David says in Psalm 142, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I let my trouble before him. And he goes on. I mean, I'm, have y'all, has anyone ever complained to God? Have you ever been bold enough to do that? And I think the Bible is clear that we can cry out to God like this. We can complain to God. And so these Psalms are called Psalms of lament. They express sorrow or grief or complaint about life as we're living it. And they both speak to life from an external perspective, just like life pressing in on me and just giving me a hard time. But it's also life coming out from inside, you know, out. How the things in me, the evil in me, the sin in me, that's affecting also how I'm living. And I like the Psalms uh, particularly uh, because the, the Psalms just seem so real. They're people who are in tune with how they feel, and they have no problem sharing that with God, knowing that he can handle who they are, what they're going through. But on the other end, he's going to come. He's going to come to their aid. And so this is what the sorrow, the, the, this is what the, the psalmists do. They just, in their complaining, they talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Sorrow, fear, anger, desolation, repentance, disappointment, depression, on and on and on. And they have no problems doing that. And I would tell you, I know I'm a little hesitant to do this, and perhaps you're afraid to do that as well, because we think it's irreverent. We think that complaining to God, saying how we honestly feel before God, um, that just God doesn't want to hear that kind of thing. We think, you know, God has all these, all these things are going on in God and his world, most of them dealing with human beings, wars over here, bad weather over here, 
And God, I mean, why would God want to handle my mess? Why would he be concerned with the things going on with me? Um, I, I mean, I just can't start griping at God like that because it would just be a bother to him. But here's the truth about our lives. Because of the sin of our world and the sin that's in us, actually the sin in us creates the sin in our world, we will experience pain and hurt. And that's what God wants us to know through uh, writers like the Psalms. He's, he's telling us life is going to bring you pain because of the sin in you and the sin that, that happens in the world because of the original sin. What the psalmist is teaching us is that God wants us to pour out our complaints to him and to tell him our troubles. And the truth is, if you don't give it to God, your complaint's going to come out in some other way. You're either going to complain um, to other people. You'll complain uh, by holding it in and giving yourself a heart attack or putting yourself in depression. Um, and so, I mean, what are your options? Complain to other people. Com- keep it in and, and, and worry yourself or give it to God. He says, you choose. One more Psalm. Psalm 77, 1, 77, 1 through 13. I don't think I put this in the, uh, did I put this up there? I didn't. All right. All right. I'm just going to read this to you. You can turn to it. Psalm 77, verse 1 through 13. It's a lot of, a lot of words, so I didn't uh, put it on the screen. I cry out to the Lord. This is not a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I mean, this this psalmist is going through a hard time. And he says, when I even think about God himself, I mean, it hurts me. I, my, my, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in the night. Let me t- meditate my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I'll appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great, like our God. So when we complain to God, it gets our eyes off of ourselves and our problems, and it puts it onto God. And I think um, rightly, this is what the psalmist in Psalm 77 is showing us. I can put my, my issues on someone else and affect their life. I can hold them in and just ruin my own life, or I can put it on God who can handle it all. And this psalm and the ones that we read previous to this shows us that we can do that, putting our pain onto God because he can handle it. And I think this is, this is just God's character. He's able to handle your stuff. And I think this is the essence of worship. And you probably, I mean, I, I don't think about worship as coming to God like this, but God can, ha- God is, he wants to be, uh, if he's our God and we're his people, just like you and your, your children, you can handle both their good days and their bad days. And he's welcoming us into that. Now, why have I said all that? I've said all that and introduced you to all these psalms because what we're reading in Jonah chapter 2 
is we just switched from narrative and and prose of Jonah chapter one, and we've branched into a psalm. The writer of Jonah, of the book of Jonah, we don't know if it's Jonah or not. It sounds like it is. But the writer has switched into cataloging a poem that that, that Jonah wrote either sometime when he was in the midst of the belly of this fish or at some point after that. And in this psalm, Jonah is lamenting what he's done and the condition that he's in. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but I mean, it does end well. The, the Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited up Jonah out on the land. I don't know if that's good or bad. At least he got out of the belly of the whale. Two verses in particular show us Jonah calling out, crying out, complaining to God. Verse two, he says, I call. I called out to the Lord. I mean, he's in distress. And then in verse four, um, not so much in agony, but he's he's looking up to life as he knew it. The words that he says, I look up at your temple and I'm longing for that thing that I was able to enjoy when I was in my right mind and doing what I was supposed to do as a prophet and as a covenant member of the nation of Israel. And this that that what I want to focus on just for a couple seconds is this idea of the temple in in verse two. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he. Where is the verse? Where is it? Verse four. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet again, I shall look upon your holy temple. And the temple for Jonah was was both good news and and bad news. Uh, I'm going to show a a display of the temple here. You can't see it well. When you go home, Google Solomon's temple. You'll come up with uh, uh, something similar to this. There there are three portions of the temple. It's not all shown on this this. This slide here, but there was an outer court where people would gather and anybody, Gentile or Jew, could gather there um, to to be near the place where uh, the people came to worship God. That would be everything outside of uh, the cemented area there. And then once you step through a a portico, you were on the the inner court and the inner court was only for Jewish people, the, the covenant people. Of God, and then in the, the the building itself, the temple itself, there's a holy place where there were several different uh, artifacts used to worship God. Most notably, uh, the the golden the golden uh, ar- uh, altar, the, uh, the the altar and the incense, uh, representing prayer and worship going before God continually. And then towards the back part of uh, the temple itself is the most holy place, the, the holy of holies, where the manifest presence of God dwelt. And so Jonah is really, I think he's speaking of his temple experience, what he remembers when he was a, a true worshiper of God. And he's lamenting that he in the belly of the, 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 the fish is not going to be able to experience this anymore. And significantly, there's three things in the most holy place, in the, the manifest presence of God that Jonah would have been remembering at this point. OK, firstly, there, there's, there's the Ark of the Covenant. OK, that is like a treasure chest kind of thing overlaid with gold that had three things in it. Firstly, it had Aaron's rod 
Aaron was the first priest that Moses commissioned to, uh, you know, to be the priest over Israel. There's this account in Numbers chapter 16 and 17 where uh, one brand of priests, Korah, um, came up to Moses and Aaron and says, we don't like how you're leading us. Why is it you're so special and you, you're the only ones that get to minister before God? Can't we do it too? And uh, they rebelled. And there's this interesting story, you can go read it, uh, in verse uh, chapter 16 and 17, where God put them to the test. And he says, bring a rod here. Aaron's going to have his rod. Cor, you and your guys bring your rod. Whichever rod buds is going to be the true priest of Israel. And of course, none of their rods budded except for Aaron's. And his rod budded almonds. I, I can't even imagine that. And so God tells Moses to put Aaron's uh, almond budded uh, rod inside the the, the Ark of the Covenant, to remind Israel of their rebellion. And the second thing inside the, uh, the Ark um, was manna. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, uh, brought them to Mount Sinai, and they should have gone into the Canaan, but they, they didn't believe God. They, Moses brought the Ten Commandments down. Uh, they had made a golden, golden calf, and so God killed them off, and then he made them roam throughout the wilderness for 40 years. What did they eat when they were in the wilderness? They ate manna. Manna was a flake-like wafer that fell from the ground like dew. And it only lasted for one day. They had to pick it up when it fell, and they used it to make all kind of whatever they were going to eat for that day. And if they didn't pick it up for that day, it would dissolve or rot before the next day. And that was symbolic for them that, that God demands worship continually. But more than that, God is your provision, and you have to rely on that provision every single day over again, brand new. Thirdly, there were the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, obviously, Exodus chapter 20. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He meets in the presence of God 40 days and 40 nights. Y'all know Moses did that three times? Incredible. He comes down with two stone tablets. Where it says God wrote on his finger commands. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't chill. Honor your mother and father. And he tells Moses to put these tablets into the, the Ark of the Covenant to remind Israel that they are in covenant with God, but more importantly, there are laws and rules for them to live by. And so Jonah saying these words, I'm looking up to the holy temple, those words sound good, but Jonah, he knew he was in trouble because the temple, the, the, the vivid symbol of the temple was the most holy place. That place where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was and where the high priest could only go into that area one time a year, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is what the Jews call it today. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a mercy seat. And the mercy seat was just a lid. It was just a cover covered in gold. And on top of that were two cherubim facing each other with their wings outspread, protecting it. And the, the, the high priest would come in, he would slaughter a, a bull, and he would take blood and sprinkle it over the mercy seat, signaling um, God's mercy being extended. And so this is, this is the picture. Jonah is thinking while he's, I mean, he, he feels like he's in shield. He's in uh, worse than death. He's alive, but in a place 
where he's separated from God forevermore. And he's looking back to this time where he was a, a true worshiper of God, a prophet looking at God's temple and proudly worshiping and says, oh, my gosh, I have rebelled against God. Oh, my gosh, I have not followed God's commands. Oh, my gosh, I have not worshiped God properly. I have not I have not come to him daily uh, depending on his provision. Jonah knew that he was in trouble, but that's the bad news. The good news is for for Jonah and for us is, is the ark itself, that on top of the ark was a mercy seat. And the mercy seat uh, symbolized in all of our rebellion, in all those ways that we fail God, God extends us mercy. He gives us grace when we don't deserve it. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, perhaps one of the ways that you think about Christianity are, you know, all the rules. I mean, you read, you might open up a place in the Bible and says you're supposed to do this and not do that. And those are in there for a reason. They, they, uh, they mirror God's character for us. And when you rightly understand them, um, it's, it's really a blessing to God in, in terms of how we're supposed to live. But if you stop there and only look at the rules, then you miss Christianity. Because on the other side of that is gospel. And the gospel is, is the mercy seat. The gospel is, in all the ways that I've failed God, in all the ways that I'm supposed to worship him, but I don't, in all the ways that I see how he's called me to live in harmony with him and other people, and I fail to do that, he still loves me when I don't deserve it. And that's mercy. The New Testament calls it propitiation. It's God diverting the wrath of God away from me when I mess up, when I sin, and he instead puts it on Jesus. And so the picture that we have, even in Jonah, is a picture of God extending grace to to us when we don't deserve it. God giving mercy to Jonah when Jonah deserved judgment. Because what was Jonah doing? He was running from God. He didn't deserve God's mercy. He deserved judgment. And so God's mercy triumphs over our rebellion. That's what he's showing Jonah. God's mercy triumphs over our lack of worship. God's mercy triumphs, his mercy triumphs over all the things in our lives that keep us from living holy, faithful lives toward God. And so when you see the cross, that insane historical picture where God took away the sins of the world by placing them on his son, you know what this leads to, at least what it should lead to. It should lead to worship. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Jonah feels like he's in a place, he's, he's in the side of a, a, a fish, and uh, the, the scriptures say he's probably suffocating of sorts. He's got seaweed wrapped around his body, yuck. I mean, the, the, the insides of the animal are probably uh, just pressing in, convulsing as it's trying to di- digest him. I mean, think about all of this going on. Jo- and, and he says, I'm going down to the very depths. He's, he's going down so low in the, in the sea that it's, it's like mountainous. He's the, the, the whatever's on the bottom of the water as he's crossing the Mediterranean. He thinks that the end is near. He's near death. But God saves him when he didn't deserve it. 
I especially like verse 4 and 7. I, I keep going back to these. Verse 4, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet again, I look upon your holy temple. In verse 7, these are, I think, the, the two of the most important um, verses in, in this passage. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah is saying, I feel totally lost and jacked up, if I can say that in church. But I'll exercise faith. I'll worship and pray. And this is, this is what's inherent in worship and prayer. It's not just talking to God. It's talking to yourself. You see how he's doing that? He, he, he switched his tone. He starts talking to himself. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He's talking to himself. He's not just talking to God. He's talking to himself. It's not just listening to his heart. Why is that? Because sometimes our hearts deceive us. If you were Jonah, what would your heart be saying right now? Dude, you are messed up. You, you missed it. There's, this is the end for you. You failed God. There's no way under heaven and earth that God is going to turn around and undo all the things that you've done. But somewhere, Jonah exercised faith. Somehow, he knew this wasn't the end. And we see that when he starts talking to himself. Faith is not listening to your own heart. It's talking to your heart because our hearts deceive us. This is what Psalm 43, 5 says. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you... Why are you in turmoil within me? This is a man talking to himself, trying to encourage himself. We don't know what he's going through, but we, it's got to be bad. He's saying, stop listening to yourself. He keeps going, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, the Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament. There's more quotations from the Psalms in our New Testament than any other Old Testament book. And Jonah is right here doing what the psalmists do so well. He's talking to his soul. He's talking to his heart. The psalmist is saying, you're so, I mean, you're so tempted to be led astray when you listen to yourself. So the psalmist talks to himself, put your hope in God. And that really is, amazingly, what Jonah starts to do. Faith is looking at all the facts that are going on in your life, and not letting our emotions guide us. Because it's only when your mind is filled with God's truth and your emotions are following that you, that you truly worship. Did you hear that? It's when, you, it's when your mind is filled with God's truth, not necessarily the facts that you're experiencing, and your emotions follow God's truth. That's when you truly worship. It's continually focusing on God's temple, as he says in verse 7. It's continually preaching the gospel to yourself. And so Jonah cried out for mercy. Verse 7 again. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah remembered the Lord. He remembered all the, I mean, I, we don't know what Jonah's life was like when he, when he wasn't inside the belly of a fish, but it obviously wasn't as grave as his current condition. God, he remembered God delivering Israel. He wasn't there, but he probably remembered the story of God delivering Israel through the Red Sea. God has already brought our people out of water. He's rescued, he's parted the sea and brought them through to, to save them from the Egyptian army that was, that was following them. 
meaning to bring them back into slavery. He's going, he remember Israel going before, uh, God going before Israel as a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night as they were going in the wilderness. He remembered God defeating all of Israel's enemies as they were gaining Canaan, the promised land. I think something transitioned in Jonah in the midst of his prayer such that he turned from despondency, oh, it's me, I'm not going to survive this, to pleading for mercy and eventually to re, uh, a resolve to worship. And that's something that, uh, that something was faith. And that really is what gets, uh, what verse eight gets at. Verse eight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah was worshiping his own idea of who God was. Jonah was worshiping the, he, he wanted God to be only God to the Hebrews. Jonah knew how wicked and um, evil Assyria was. And if God had mercy on the Assyrians in Nineveh, then perhaps Assyria would turn, God would spare them, and they would go on. I mean, there'd be no judgment for all the bad things that they had already done. There are so many people in Scripture that we have record of that uh, worship the God that they want, but not the God who's there. We talked about Peter a sermon series ago. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You suffer not the things of, uh, of the Lord, but of the world. Peter was one who was worshiping the God that he wanted, not the God who was there. And Jonah here uh, is worshiping his own idea of God. Jonah was worshiping his emotions. His emotions and feelings had gotten ahead of his faith. Jonah idolized his emotions and his feelings. And this is what he says in verse 8. It jeopardized his hope for hesed. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, which is the covenant love of God that God has for his people. Though you forsake me, I'll not forsake you. Though you might leave me, though you might wrong me, though you might not even worship me, I will always press in to you. So he's saying, when I choose to go with how I feel about a situation versus the facts of, of what's true about God, then I have made an idol of how I feel and my emotions, and inevitably, I have given up my hope for hesed, this covenant love that God has for those who love him. So, I mean, this chapter ends on a, on a positive note. Next week, we're going to get to chapter 3, and it even in Jonah's uh, obedience, he's disobedient. We'll find that out in the next two weeks. Jonah is delivered. He learns the lesson that will allow him to obey God and that God is not just a God of the Hebrews. He's a saving God. That's what verse 9 and, and 10 tells us. I want to apply this, though. I want to apply this for you such that when you wake up tomorrow, something from Jonah chapter 2 might help you live, your, live that day a little bit better. You know, most of us are totally led by our emotions. You ever thought about that? I mean, just wake up and, you know, you, you feel happy or sad or glad, um, and you live according to how that emotion is, and everything else is subject to that. And really, the Bible is not, the Bible doesn't espouse you to live that way. We're not to be led by and live by our emotions. The danger is if you let your heart guide you, it will often take you where you didn't, where you don't, don't want to go. Jonah let his emotions, his thoughts of who Assyria was, over, overcome what God had told him to do. 
It had become his idol. Imagine yourself at a party, and you don't know everybody there, but somebody in the corners kind of kind of looked at you side eye. It's like whatever side eye looks like, okay? And and I mean, when people look at us and they they might frown or you know, it's not a smile looking on our face. What what do we think? We become insecure. We think that well, they must not like me, or something something must be wrong with me. Okay, we don't have positive thoughts usually when someone frowns at us. And if we will allow it, those thoughts will will uh, emerge feelings in us that that person may not even be thinking. Right? Don't we do that? That's insecurity. And so from then on, that person that frowned at you, scalded at you, intentionally or maybe unintentionally, you might you might live your life from the perspective of whatever that person did at that party. Um, you might tell your friends, yeah, I don't think that person likes me because they did this to me when that may not even be the truth. You might not even know that person. We have a feeling, we make an assumption, and we live our life based on that. I know that's a weak example, but that's the only one that came off the top of my head. Um, the Bible says we're to live differently. We're to lead uh, lives that are focused on truth. The truth leads our life. We put our faith in a fact and our feelings follow. Let me say that again. We put our faith in a fact and our feelings and our emotions follow. And so that same situation, somebody gives you a dirty look and instead of you automatically thinking that person doesn't like you or that something is wrong, you, I mean, you say to yourself, you know, something else must be going on. I mean, why do I have to think that that person doesn't like me or or whatever, that their friend was intended for me? And so what lie could I believe in? What lie could I be believing if I let myself um, live, if, if feelings come up from me from someone who simply frowns at me? What sin could I be believing? A noted uh, TV psychologist says this. You worry less. Uh, you worry a lot less about what people think about you if you knew how little they actually do think about you. It's Doctor Phil. You know what? We're just not that important. We think we're important, and maybe some of you are, but we're not that important. You're important to God, but not to a whole lot of other people. So we put a lot of time into thinking about. We worry about what people think about us based upon how they look at us. We get all these thoughts in our head, and then our emotions drive us. This is kind of away from Jonah, but Jonah was doing the same thing in a different kind of way. Jonah had emotions and feelings based upon what God told him to do. He did not want to do it, and he let those emotions and feelings drive him so much that he, his emotional idol became a vain, emotions became a vain idol, and he almost forsook his hesed, his covenant love, God, God's covenant love for him. And so what lie could Jonah be believing? I think he could believe in that, that God's not for me. He's against me. He's turned his affection from Israel. He's distant and mean. And perhaps some of you battle those same kind of thoughts about God in your life from different different perspectives. Perhaps something has happened, a past hurt, that you think God is distant and, and mean, and you can't get over that. Your feelings are driving how you live your life. More importantly, your feelings are driving how you, how you get along with God. 
You look at things that have gone on in your life that you had no control over, and you say, I mean, this just is not fair. And where is God in all this? It's wrong to, uh, is it wrong to feel this way? Absolutely not. But the issue is, how are you dealing with it? You, you can't stuff, you can't stuff all of our, we can't stuff all of our emotions and feelings down because they'll come back up somehow. They'll manifest those feelings that we have. You have to deal with them. So I'm going to give you four ideas of how to deal with them, and then we'll be done. This is exercising your faith. How do we exercise our faith when, um, when a sin or a feeling or emotion is leading us and we're just getting ourselves into trouble? I think the first thing is recognize the emotion or feeling. Somehow you have to slow down, do a little bit of self-analysis and say, you know what? My anger, uh, my out-of-controlness, my rage, my sorrow, my guilt, my depression, this is, it's, I know I got it. Either you can know it intuitively or ask your spouse, ask your kids. They'll tell you the truth. So what do you do with it? I think you got to repent for it. Repentance is, is always the, the first avenue to change. If you have some area in your life that you want to change, the first thing you need to do other than acknowledging that area is repenting. Repenting is God's grace to us. It's really a blessing that he opens your eyes to an area in your life that may not be exactly how it's supposed to be. Primarily, he's opening your eyes to ways that you are not living in accordance with the Bible, God's God's love for you that he expresses through his word. And in our repenting, we turn from whatever we're doing, however we're expressing our emotions, and we turn to God. And we do that in faith. We do it in faith because it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't happen magically. The third thing is you find the truth. What, is it, what am I believing? Uh, am I a failure? Uh, I'll, I'll never be able to love anybody. Um, I'm always going to be angry in these kind of situations. If you're saying those kinds of things, what, what, it, what are those things that you're saying to yourself that the Bible would say something different about you? I'm a failure. I'm no good. These are things that you say to yourself, perhaps things that somebody has said to you that you've carried with you and you're living it out now. And I would encourage you, don't just find any truth. Find like a specific truth that fits your area. If it's anger, find a, a Bible verse that talks about anger. And this is where your Bible study, a concordance, just digging into the word comes into play. Those of you struggling with any area, go to that. Go to your, the, the concordance in the back of your Bible. Honestly, you can go on Google. Google.com, type in, I am an angry person. Give me a Bible verse. And something's going <laughs> to pop up. Honestly, I'm telling you. Find a specific Bible verse that speaks to your issue, and then you got to apply it. And I would tell you, one of the ways to apply it is replace what you're believing. I'm a failure with what God would believe about you. God doesn't say you're a failure. You're adopted. You're a son. You're loved. You're good through him. Not in your own strength, but in his. You know, all of us in some area of our lives are being led by our emotions. I'm in a bad mood today. I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You don't have to let how you feel control your life. You don't have to let feelings pull you away from those you love, more importantly. And so how do we exercise our faith? Jonah did some of this. 
You have to get God's truth in you and know it from inside out. I think you have to recognize emotions and feelings that are leading you away from God. Find the flaw in your emotion that's leading you astray. Repent. We'll talk about that next week in in chapter three. And then find the truth and apply it. Let's pray. Where faith is a fleeting thing sometimes. We're grasping for it and it doesn't always come for us, to us as easily as we want it. But we thank you for Jonah chapter two, um, for this slim picture of Jonah exercising his faith, of seeing where his emotions and his feelings were leading his life, leading it down a path that unfortunately he went down but found out it was just a bad path, a path that led to Sheol which ultimately is absence from God's presence. Lord, save us from that. Save us from being people who lead our lives through our emotions and help us to firstly see anger, distrust. All those things in us that might keep us from living fruitful lives. And like Jonah, Lord, give us this moment where we actually stop lamenting and that lament turns to praise. God, and like in verse 9 and 10, it says, Jonah offered up a, a praise of thanksgiving. He gave a sacrifice to God and he recognized, I, I can't idolize my own version of salvation. Salvation is of God. So save us, Lord. Save us like you saved Jonah. You saved him despite himself. You saved him when he didn't deserve it. You saved him even when he wasn't fully, um, hadn't fully gone through the repentant process. Would you do that for us? Even in our crying out, even in our complaining to you, I pray that you help. Help as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.